Hey there, I'm so glad you're joining us this weekend. If I've never had the chance to meet you, I'm Dan, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, love that you're kind of checking things out if this is your first time doing that. Uh, I wanna let you know this, uh, we're gonna take a look at what God's Word has to say here in a second. Uh, at the end of our time of teaching, I kind of come back and uh, there's just some uh, things by way of family news and announcement that I just would love to kind of share with you to keep you in the loop on some things. But we, for the sake of our conversation, we're talking about the church. And uh, we're not just saying what the church is, we've talked about that, the church is people, not a building, not a service. But really what we're saying is, let's talk about what the church should be doing, right? Or let's talk about what the church should be like. Everybody has an opinion, whether, whether they go to church, don't go to church, whether they're Christian, not Christian, whatever it might be, everybody seems to have an opinion. And here's what I wanna tell you this, this present cultural moment that we find ourselves in demands that we have this discussion. The church in this present cultural moment, unfortunately, uh, is reeling, trying to find its identity. And there's a pressure on the church, right, to embrace some things. Uh, on one hand, uh, there's this pressure to embrace this national, this religious nationalism. On the other, there's this pressure to embrace this kind of uh, woke moralism, right? And what happens, instead of the church being a community of people that's built on a firm foundation, Jesus, too often it looks like a swing on a pendulum, right? kind of wafting back and forth between this religious nationalism, this woke moralism. And so that's why we're looking at the book of Acts, because we're just saying, okay, what is the church? And here's what we've been saying in terms of a definition. We said the church is people, it's a community that's called out by God, who follows Jesus as their kings, that means he's their savior and Lord, and they're filled with his spirit. Okay, called out by God, following Jesus, filled with his spirit. And so we've been just looking at some different things. Okay, if it's a called out community, what does that look like in our culture? And the book of Acts kind of helps describes the very inception of this community of called out people. And so we each week have been looking at, I think this is our sixth week. Here's what I wanna look at today. For a few minutes, I wanna look at this. You wanna write this down, go ahead and do this, right? But the church is a community that is dedicated to making Jesus make sense in a culture where Jesus doesn't always make sense. That's what the church is. Let me ask you a question. Let's just kind of set this up. Have you ever been somewhere or have you ever done something where things didn't make sense? You ever done that? Like just think for a minute. You ever been somewhere where things didn't make sense? Uh, let, me, let me help you. Have you ever moved from one part of the country to another part of the country and, and you didn't grow up there? And so when you showed up there, like everybody's talking about stuff and it didn't make sense to you, you can feel kind of lost, right? You feel like, man, I don't know what everybody's talking about. I, I know I felt that when I moved to Akron, right? I'm a Pennsylvania boy and then I went, lived in Indiana, but then I came back here, right? And I remember my first several weeks here, there's a lot of things that didn't make sense, right? I'd ask people how to get to places. They'd say, hey man, take the Kenmore leg and it's down by the rubber bowl. And I'm like, what? Like, I had no idea. Or they say, hey man, you going to Rogue's Hollow? And I'm like, what is that, right? I had no idea what people were talking about, but they were used to it. They understood each other. I didn't. You know what? I didn't grow up here. You know what I needed? I needed my secretary to make Akron make sense for me. So when I was going somewhere, like, what is the Kenmore leg, right? Where is the rubber bowl, right? 
Now, what is Rogues Holland? She, she would make sense of Akron for me. Or maybe here's another illustration. Maybe, maybe you're like me on this. But, but when it comes to computers, anybody with me on this? It doesn't make sense. Are you tracking with me? Right? Yeah, if you're my age, you're like, oh, I've got it right. And, and so there's a lot. Like, I love my computer. Right? I'm lost without it. But there are so many things about my computer that don't make sense to me. Right? It gives me messages. That little thing starts spinning. I don't know what to do. I don't know if it's going to, you know. And so what I have here on our team is a guy named Mike. <laughs> Mike. He's the calmest dude in the building, right? But you know what Mike does for me? He makes computers make sense to me, right? He's like, Dan, I want to make sense of this to you so that you can use your computer. All of us at different times, we need somebody to make sense of something for us, right? Makes sense because it's frustrating. You feel lost. The question I want to talk about is how can we make sense of Jesus in a culture where he doesn't always make sense? I'm convinced of this. Most people who reject Christianity don't really know what they're rejecting. It doesn't make sense to them. And unfortunately, too often, the church has even confused that for them. And the reason it doesn't make sense to them isn't their fault necessarily, but there's a statistic that uh, I just saw this last week. It was interesting. 85% of 85-year-olds grew up in church. That's interesting. But each year since then, it's kind of gone down a percent. 18% right now of 18-year-olds have grown up in church. That's fascinating, Right? And here's what it means to me. It means that if the church is a community of people called out by God to make Jesus make sense in a culture where it doesn't always make sense, the reason it doesn't always make sense is it's like there's not an exposure sometimes to Jesus. There's not exposure to what God has to say. That's why we're in Acts, right? Acts 17 is interesting. Got your Bibles? Flip it open. Acts 17. Go there. Get a piece of paper. We're going to fly. Go make some observation that I hope matters where you're at. Acts 17, Paul, about Paul, he preached in Berea, and it was going so well. Pastor JC is going to lead us in this next week, but it went so well there that a group of people from another town, Thessalonica, you can forget that, but they got so frustrated that it was going so well, they sent some people to that town to stir up some trouble. And so literally they stirred up so much trouble that Paul's friends had to escort him out of town. And so they take him and escort him to Athens, Athens, Greece, right? And so Paul, this well-educated man, is waiting for two of his friends to show up in Athens, Paul and Silas, or, or not Paul and Silas, but Silas and Timothy. And as he's waiting for them, this fascinating narrative breaks out in Acts 17. Look what it says. Let's pick it up, verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly, circle this word, distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, Paul is waiting, and here's the first thing we see, is he's greatly distressed. That word simply means this, means to be, he was twisted up inside. He was troubled at his core, right? He was stimulated inside to action, so to speak. Why was Paul twisted up? What was Paul all twisted up about? Well, he was twisted up because he looked around and saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. In fact, there was one uh, writer who said this, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. They, were, they had so many gods, he said it's easier to find a god than it is a man. In fact, they had 10 to 12 major gods or goddesses, and then they had all these secondary deities. 
And they had them everywhere. And there was statues to them everywhere. All these gods and goddesses. I mean, some of them are interesting to me. We'll throw some on the screen. You can see them. But Artemis was the goddess of prosperity, money, right? Wealth, materialism. If you wanted that, you went to her temple and you made an offering there, right? Uh, here's another one, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, battle strategy, politics, right? If you wanted to be smart, to have wisdom, you worshiped her. You went to her temple, right? And you made offerings there. Uh, here's one, maybe this is a name familiar, Nike, right? Swoosh, <laughs> the goddess of victory. He's worshiped by athletes and warriors and apparently Michael Jordan, I don't know, makes you jump higher, run faster, soar above the comp competition. Uh, here's one, uh, Aphrodite. Aphrodite, right? That's the goddess of sexuality, beauty, fertility. And let's just say, as you can see, that the pictures of this goddess, I wouldn't suggest you go Google it, okay? But Aphrodite, you want better sex, you want fertility, you go to her temple, right? and you worship. Uh, here's one, this is interesting. They had a god or goddess for everything. Cleosina, the goddess Cleosina. This goddess Cleosina, this is one maybe you've never heard of, right? She was the goddess of the sewer system. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not sure what you worshiped her for or even less how you made an offering to her. I have no idea. I wonder if that's what was the beginning of people burning candles in their bathrooms. I have no idea, right? But they had a god or a goddess for everything. Now listen, listen close. All these gods or goddesses, this is just a smattering, an example of some, they all were means to something. You would worship them, appease them in order to get, listen close, prosperity, power, money, success, wisdom, better sex, whatever it is that was important to you. And you know something, you read this kind of stuff and easy to explain it in a way that this was an ancient society. They were naive, they were underdeveloped, they were less sophisticated than we are today, that they would worship such audacious things as athletic prowess, sexuality, sensuality, power, success, materialism, and political ideologies. Hmm. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we've evolved and become more sophisticated? Look at this picture. See, the truth is we might not build the same kind of statues, but I think it was Augustine who said this, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that's meant to be worshiped. Here's the point. In Acts 17, Paul is, he's twisted up inside because that place is full of idols. So what did he do? Well, look what he did. So he went and he reasoned. In the synagogue, so he went to the place of worship with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as, underline that, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. First thing I want you to see here is this, he reasoned, uh, in some of your Bibles it might say he disputed or he debated, but I actually think the Greek word is dialogetto. And here is where we get the word dialect and dialogue and all those kind of things. Paul is engaging in conversation, remember that. The place is full of idols, and so what he's doing is he's engaging the people in conversation, and notice where he goes. He goes to the place where the religious people are gathering to worship, 
And then it says he goes to the marketplace, and that's not Acme. That's not the shopping mall. But, but the marketplace, just I want you to know this, it is the hub of the city. It is the financial, philosophical, political, artistic hub of the city. It's where all the action happened. It's where everything transpired. It's where all the people hung out. And he's gone there day by day, and he's dialoguing. He's having conversation. Verse 18. So here's what happens. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Let's stop. Epa what? Stoa what? <laughs> right? We, like these things are like, what? We can just read right over it. This is interesting because sometimes we think that everything that we're experiencing today is new and there's not a lot new under the sun, guys. Do you know who <clears throat> the Epicureans, they were philosophers. They liked to debate ideas. The Epicureans, they were relativists. Here's what they, they, they thought. They thought the meaning of life is happiness. And if it feels good, do it. That's what you need to go do. And that must be what's right for you, you to do. If it feels good to you, go do it. Whereas the Stoics, they were moralists. And, and they had this idea, we know and can be convinced of absolutes. And, and what the purpose of life is, is to be good. <clears throat> now here's the key, and we know what good is. And so the purpose is that everybody conform to what we determine good is. And so what happens is they begin to ponder what Paul is saying. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? That, that by the way, was not compliment. <laughs> Uh, literally, that word, this is just interesting to me, that, that word means a seed-gathering bird. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever called you that, right? What's this seed-gathering bird trying to say? But, but I think it would have been a picture. They're like, is he just gathering up like a bird different bits and pieces of philosophy and then spitting them out? Because to them, it was kind of new. They said, what's he trying to say? Others said, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Listen, listen, lean in. Like, we've never heard of this stuff before. They said this, why did they say this? Because Paul was preaching, this is key, good news. About who? Go ahead, say it where you're sitting. About who? Jesus. And the good news revolved around Jesus and the what? The what? Resurrection. So what happened? Well, verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, that's interesting, right? Say that word three times fast, right? But, but that is a real place. I want to show you a picture of this just so you know that the document you're reading, the Bible, isn't this, like you can really go and see this place. And it's where they would have held court cases. There was even this mythological legend that Eris, this, this mystical person, was supposedly tried by Greek gods for killing Poseidon's son. I mean, there's, all, there's this whole story behind it. But you can actually go see this place that's talked about here in Acts 17. And they bring him here and they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? Paul, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We've not heard this before and we'd like to know what they mean. And then it just goes on to say all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about the latest ideas. Look at verse 22. So then Paul stood up in the meeting and said this, people of Athens, and he makes an observation. He says, I see that you are very religious in every way. 
He, he, that word there, some people think it, it can be negative, and it could be superstitious, but it also can mean this. I can see you're spiritual. I think what's going on, he's like, I'm looking around. I, I can see this about you. You're very religious. You know something. There's something in you. Paul's looking at the, Listen, listen. There's something in you that's looking for something outside of you to give you purpose and meaning and fulfillment. There's nothing new under the sun, guys. There's something in all of us looking for something outside of us that's going to give meaning, purpose, significance, identity. It's evident Paul took the time to investigate and understand them. So verse 23, he said, As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. There's actually, you can look at archaeology. I mean, there's actually an altar, right? There was an altar to the unknown God. This is the altar to the, I call it the just-in-case God. <laughs> this is just-in-case, right? Just-in-case we missed one, <laughs> right? Paul is acknowledging something that he sees in their culture that there's this uncertainty in them. And there's this void that even though they had all of these numerous gods, that void was unfilled. What's true then is true now, isn't it? <laughs> A just-in-case God comes in kind of handy. A just-in-case God can be convenient. Guys, like we can look at them and say, wow, that's such an ancient culture. But while we're busy offering our time, our energy, our passion, and the best we have to all of our modern-day gods pursuing power, success, materialism, athletic prowess, sexual whatever, as we're busy kind of pursuing all those things that are going to give us meaning, that are going to give us significance, give us purpose, identity, as we're doing that, we like to have in our back pocket the just-in-case God. I think that's why some of us say, well, that's why I'll go to church services, just in case. That's why I'll wear this piece of jewelry that has a religious significance, just in case, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly. That's why some of us, maybe we say the rosary or we have this memorized prayer, just in case. Just in case. This is the just in case God. And look what happens. He says, I see that you have this altar, so you are ignorant. He's not being derogatory. He says, you just don't know. You're naive of the very thing you worship. You, you, you don't even understand what's behind this just in case God. And he said, that's where I'm going to start. That's what I'm going to proclaim to you. You have an uncertainty. He's looking at these people and he's saying, you have an uncertainty. And there's something inside of you that knows you need something outside of you to give you significant meaning. That you need something a lot bigger than even the gods you're worshiping. And we long for a God that is more satisfying than we've experienced. And here's the deal. Paul says your idolatry is pointing to a spirituality that, and this just-in-case God, and it reminds you there's something missing. So that's where Paul engages them. He doesn't rail against them. He doesn't shout, right? He, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't start picketing. He doesn't even start preaching against their idolatry per se. Look what he says. He starts talking from where they're at, this unknown God, the God who made the world and everything in it, verse 24, 
is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that all should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Here's what he's saying. Let me make really short work of this. He's looking to say, the God who made the heavens and the earth, he's huge. He's bigger than you think. That's what he's saying. He's saying he is a God that is so big, you can't even totally wrap your head around it. Uh, here's why that was important. All of their gods and goddesses were simply magnified versions of themselves. When you think about it, you study the gods of mythology, they were just magnified versions of themselves. That's why the gods were prickly, egocentric. They needed to be appeased. Paul is saying God is not a projection of me. It's not what he is. He's not just a magnified version of me. But instead, I've been made in his image. And he's not a God who's dependent on anyone, but he created everyone. And he's a God who's sovereign over everything. Write this word down somewhere, even if you've never heard it, whatever. God is transcendent. Who are you going to compare God to? That's what it means. God is so, God is bigger. I promise you this. God is bigger than you think he is right now, than I think he is. That's how big God is. But he goes on, he says, God did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him. And perhaps, listen, reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. That's interesting. He's saying the same God that is huge is near. That's eminence. He is a transcendent God. He's an eminent. He is a near God. This God who is so huge, he's bigger than all of these gods put together and anything you've ever dreamed, he is near. And he wants a relationship with those that he's made. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that God is so near you can touch him. In fact, he quotes one of their poem, poets. He says this, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Uh, he literally is quoting from some of their own poets. Uh, the very first quote is a quote from a song written about Zeus, 600 B.C., right? Uh, and then the, the second quote is, is from a work from a Stoic philosopher called the Phenomio, right? And it's, it's simply a, he's saying, your own poets, I, he, he so was engaged in their culture that, that he said, your own poets began scratching at things where truth could be found. Like they're asking the right questions. I love that about Paul. He started right where they were at. Well, look at what it says, verse 29. And then we're going to make some observations here. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn around, head a different direction. For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, and they would have understood that to be who? Jesus. So he's been talking about. He has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him, who? Jesus, from the dead. Interesting. He goes right back to Jesus. Here's what's interesting, guys. 
Paul is engaging a culture where Jesus doesn't make sense. They're like, are you advocating something foreign? This is strange. Can you explain this? And I think in this dialogue we see there are some things that we can learn from Paul in what it means to be a community of people who live to make Jesus make sense in a culture where Jesus doesn't always make sense. Let's just write some down, make some observations. First is this, if we're gonna make Jesus make sense in our culture, we need to make the Jesus we worship in here. And so wherever that is, like in a building that we call a church or in your space where you're watching a service from uh, our particular campus, whatever it might be, we need to make that Jesus that we worship in here make sense out there. Don't miss this. Paul, when he walked into the city, he reasoned in the synagogue, in the place where people gathered to worship. By the way, different sermon. I don't think Jesus always makes sense to people who are going to church a lot. But what Paul did was he didn't just keep it there. He didn't just separate that Jesus from his public life, from the public life of the culture. But the Jesus that we worship in here is the Jesus that needs to make sense out there. And so day by day, he's in the hub of the city. He is in the hub of the political talk. He's in the hub of the financial talk. He's in the hub. If we're going to be committed to making Jesus make sense, our primary mission, listen close, has to be more than, you ready? Coming to church. A lot of people, that's, that's, that, that's their entire, like, you know, describe your, your Christian life. I go to church. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. I think if we're going to make Jesus make sense, we got to, what, be the church. And the most powerful impact, if Jesus is going to make sense, is going to happen as the church engages in the marketplace, engages in your workplace, engages in your neighborhood, engages in your school, right? You see, if we're going to make Jesus make sense, we, 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 the, the Jesus we worship in here, wherever that is, has to be the Jesus we help make sense out there. But there's a second thing I think it's interesting. You read this story. I want you to write down this way. If, if we're going to make Jesus make sense, we've got to understand idolatry. Can we just stop there a minute? Idolatry is rampant in America. Idolatry is rampant in churches. You can worship your church. You can worship a style of worship. You can worship all kinds of things, right? Anything you worship other than God is idolatry. But can we understand idolatry is an attempt to satisfy a real spiritual void? I love this about Paul. Uh, he recognized that their idolatry was actually an impulse to do what we were created to do. L listen close. We were created to worship. We were created by God to worship. The problem is we substitute other things for God. We were created to worship. We all have this intense drive to worship something or someone. And so what happens too often is we concoct idols to worship. But our idols, which are bad, right, are bad, they actually point to a real longing in our heart. Think about it, guys. Just, just, just come on. Let's just get real. Let's just get real. 
we look to our idols, 21st century American idols, to give us purpose and meaning. That's why some of, that's why some of you are workaholics. <laughs> right? you, you worship your work because that's going to give you purpose and meaning. Uh, we look to our idols to provide us with identity and significance. That's why s some of you are so fixated on your body and your looks. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being healthy. I'm just saying somebody's like, because that's who I am. So I'm going to worship whatever that is, right? That's why some of you are so fixated on getting a position that you'll do anything. You'll offer any sacrifice at that idol, right? Even if it's ethics, morality, because you want to be significant, right? We look to our idols to, we look to our idols to save us from emptiness and futility. Who wants to get to the end of their life and say, did my life matter? So what we do is we start running after the different idols that are 21st century American culture offers. We look to our idols to ensure us that we're okay. We look to our idols to provide security for us. That's why some of us worship the idol of politics and nationalism and because like then I know I'm going to be secure. And so we worship something other than God. You see, what Paul is saying is he didn't rail against it. He said, and I'm not railing against it. It points to there is a drive inside of you. You were created to worship something. The problem is that many of us are placing idols where God was intended to be. That's what he's saying. It's going to leave us just like them, empty. Which, which leads me to this. When I, when I watch Paul's interaction, I think, how am I going to make Jesus make sense in our culture? I'm going to allow compassion. He was distressed. That word is a deep, profound, twisted up. By the way, it's the same word that is used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe how God feels when people turn to idolatry instead of worshiping him. It's this deep, intense, almost a jealousy, a godly jealousy. I'm going to allow compassion to eliminate both condemnation and complacency. Write that down. Let's explain that. Paul was twisted up inside, and it caused him to seek to understand, to, to dialogue. It caused him to get involved. Listen, I want to make a statement, right? And if you need to pause to write this down, telling a person, telling a person that they are wrong might be true, but it is very different than helping them figure out what's right. I love this about Paul. Like, like the church just can't yell at culture and tell them they're wrong and judge them for not acting like Christians. I'm going to say something, and even if you need to listen to it a couple times, if we're going to make Jesus make sense, then we, we, those who would call themselves followers of Christ, have to stop being sarcastic and critical when people who are not followers of Jesus act like people who aren't following Jesus. Our job as a church, and if you're, if you're watching you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me say this, right? If you're like, I don't even claim to be a Christian. Our job is not to police the culture. In fact, Paul in another part of the Bible says, what business is it of ours to judge outsiders? 
right? But, but instead, Paul realized that they were ignorant. He uses that word ignorant. And, and he wasn't being derogatory. He says, they didn't know the truth. One of the ways that we can make a point, I've used this terminology before, make a point without ever, ever making a difference, is when we expect those who don't claim to be Christians to live like Christians. And what happens is we become condemning. You know what condemnation means? Condemnation is simply this, a feeling of superiority that looks at somebody who's stricken, feels superior, and has a desire to judge that person. But it also protects us from complacency. You know what complacency is? It's a feeling of self-satisfaction that is either unaware of danger, unwilling to get involved. Here's what compassion means. A feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another. Let me say that again. Compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who's stricken and a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. The etymology of the word is to feel something together with somebody. I feel something because I can relate with you. Paul knew that he had idols as well. You know what Paul's idol was at one time in his life? Do you know what his idol was? You know what his idol was? Listen, listen, listen. You know what his idol was? Religion. That was his idol. He knew that he had idols as well. And so he knew what it was like to be ignorant of the truth. And it wasn't until he encountered Jesus that he knew that. Right? Paul didn't preach. This is interesting to me. Paul didn't preach against their idolatry, but what he did was preach for God. He's like, here's what you're actually longing for. He was distressed and he was determined to tell them about it. His compassion drove him to action. I heard a uh, speaker uh, use this illustration uh, recently, and, and I'm not sure who the speaker was. My memory's going a little bit. How's that? But it, it caught my attention. He, he said this. He said, I don't know sign language, and I've never learned sign language. Everybody's looking like, okay. And then he says, do you know why I don't know sign language? Do you know why I've never learned sign language? Well, you can see his audience like, I don't know, never had the time. And he said, because nobody in my life or that is close to me that I love is deaf. But he looked at the audience and he said this, but if my son was deaf, I promise you, I would be stirred to action, to learn how to communicate that I love him, that I care about him. You tracking with what I'm saying? <laughs> you tracking? Like complacency says, uh, I don't need to learn new ways to describe this good old message of Jesus. I, I, I don't need to figure out how to dialogue in this new generation. You see, what happens, compassion stirs us to action to do what we otherwise wouldn't do. I think there's something else that Paul kind of teaches us. If we're going to make Jesus make sense, we've got to think conversations, not simply presentations. That's interesting, right? Uh, Paul's willing to engage in dialogue. Uh, he reasoned with them. That's what it says right here in Acts. Uh, here's the way I would say it. A presentation makes a point. A conversation is willing to engage to make a difference. 
some of you maybe grew up this way. We, we, we've been taught to make uh, a presentation when it comes to sharing Christ. But a dialogue invites a relationship. Just stay with me on this point for a minute. Uh, a conversation says, I'm not talking at you. I want to talk with you. The people are not projects. And how I talk to them matters. We can come across very defensive and mad. And sometimes I think our culture thinks we're mad at them. <laughs> uh, I think of what Colossians chapter 4 says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always, come on, say it out loud, full of what? Full of, full of what? Grace. <laughs> That's interesting. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know, when I think about this, uh, let me give you a resource. Some of you like this kind of stuff. Write the name of this book down. Uh, the name of the book is Questioning Evangelism. Powerful book. Randy Newman, author. He talks about how uh, the, the way of Jesus was to ask questions so that he might get to the thirstiness of somebody's soul that's driving them to look for something to worship outside of themselves that will eventually point them to Jesus. And it's not like questioning whether evangelism is good or bad. It's like, how do I engage conversations and ask people questions that begins to unwrap the longing of their heart? You see, it's, it, it, it is very different it's a very different approach to have a conversation with somebody and not have to present at them, not have to be defensive, right? But I can engage them in, we're gonna have to do that in this culture. And that doesn't mean we have to acquiesce, doesn't mean we have to go soft on our conviction of what God has to say in the heart of God, but I can have a conversation and I can invite them into a dialogue but here's the point, I think, of the passage, if I could say this. If we're going to make Jesus make sense, we're going to have to make it a point to make Jesus the point. <laughs> I love this. Go back and read this story. Paul started with the story of Jesus, who died, buried, and was rose again. And do you see? He ends with that story. Paul does not quote a single verse in Acts 17, Mars Hill, narrative. He doesn't even quote from the Bible. Not that that's bad. Don't, don't, don't tweet that out, right? Not that that's bad, but he doesn't. He doesn't tell them to flee from their idolatry because the Bible says so. To be honest with you, those guys might look and like, what? Like, 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 who cares? We're more interested in what our poets said. He, he, he doesn't argue from the Bible says so, and I'm not saying, that's not what he does. But what he does do is he wants to take them to Jesus, to understand who Jesus is. All of Christianity hinges on the once dead, now alive Jesus. And the point is the person of Jesus. Jesus and the story of Jesus confronts both my moralism and my relativism. If it's all about simply being moral, Jesus didn't have to die. If I get to decide that whatever I feel like is right must be right, Jesus didn't have to die for my sin. But the fact that Jesus died and then rose again is, a, is the point of what Paul is saying here. 
He could have said, get rid of your idols, because the Bible says so, but he didn't. Instead, he used their own poets to expose the need that pointed to the solution, and that was Jesus. And in the story of Jesus, we see a God who's big enough to defeat death, and yet who's loving enough to want a relationship with us. And he realized who he was talking to, right? Let, let me just say this, guys, let me say this. Some of you are, are, are watching this, and maybe you're not a Christian, and you've had people talk to you about the way you're living, and the way you're living is, is wrong because the Bible says so. And they may be correct, but that's really not the point. The point, if you're watching and you stayed with me this far, is who do you understand Jesus to be? Because if he truly was the Jesus who died, was buried and rose again, the place for you to begin, the starting point, isn't necessarily I'm doing something in my life that's wrong because it doesn't line up with the Bible, but the place to begin with is who do I say Jesus is? And when I start there, then I've got a starting point. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? What's interesting, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, look at what happens. Some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Can we come back and have more conversation? At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius and some other people. I think their response is interesting, and it makes me think this. We have to be careful how we measure success. Here's all I'd say. The babbler was not actually a seed-picking bird, <laughs> right? But he was a seed-scattering farmer. And as he scattered this seed, the seed of the story of Jesus, it eventually would spread and begin a movement. It would spread miles away to another city, Corinth. And here's what Paul said to that church in Corinth. He said, after all, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believe the good news of Jesus. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God's the one who made it grow. Not important who does the planting, who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants, the one who waters, work together. Same purpose. Both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we're both God's workers. And you're God's field. What's he saying? The measure of success is, am I scattering good seed? The seed of the good news of Jesus. Living to make Jesus make sense. Here's how I want to end some of you are watching this and Jesus has never made sense to you and you're rejecting Christianity. But the truth is you're rejecting a version of Christianity that's confusing, that's duplicitous, that maybe no one's ever explained to you. And I wanna look at you and say this, God loves you, he's bigger than you think, and he loves you, he's nearer than you imagine. And Jesus came because God loves you and wants to make a way for forgiveness of sins to be possible and for you to be part of his family. And you can reach out to him, as Paul said, and have a relationship with him. For some of you watching this, you're a follower of Jesus. And can I say this? That if we truly, as a church, are a community called out by God following Jesus as king, then our mission is to live to make Jesus make sense. And as we live to make Jesus make sense, we understand 
that we live in a culture full of idols that points to a real spiritual hunger. There's a void inside that ought to distress us much like it did Paul and move us to action to learn different ways to communicate with people who need and are longing for God. And as we do that, we think dialogue, not presentation. We invite into relationship. We engage in conversation so that we might make Jesus the point. And so God, my prayer is this. In this present cultural moment, I pray that you would help us as a campus individuals to turn the lights really bright on Jesus, to make Jesus make sense. In a culture that is desperate to know the hope, the forgiveness, the joy, the purpose, and the identity found in Christ through you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.